All right, welcome back to the show. Of course, my name is Darcy, and joining me as always is Jason from the North. How's it going, buddy? Good. How's the great beard of the South doing? It's <laughs> just fantastic. It was like plus nine here today, so it was it was absolutely wonderful. Really? Yeah. I'm not wow. even kidding. It was actually minus two here, and then uh, we've been dealing with the uh, ever so popular fun time of freezing rain all afternoon. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I woke up this morning. uh, Mind you, I didn't get to enjoy the weather. I'm stuck in an office all day. But uh, when I went to work at like seven this morning, it was it was plus seven already. Like, think it was melting and the sun hadn't even come out. It was amazing. I'm not going to (laughs) complain. But that's why you're in the north is to enjoy that beautiful weather. The beautiful weather. No, hey, how how do you get better than freezing rain in, in yeah? I know the end of November here. Absolutely. So. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff actually to talk about tonight. Uh, let's start off with the Métis National Council's annual General Assembly in, I think, Manitoba, in Winnipeg. And, uh, wow, they, uh, they had an, an, a non-Métis identity expert at their annual meeting to talk about how the Eastern Métis are stealing their identity. So yes, and of course it was your favorite uh, non-indigenous expert in mine. Absolutely, Again, yep. You know, uh, you know, and I, I, this is you know, and then it was awesomely covered by the APTN to make sure that the message went far and wide. Oh, absolutely! I mean, you got to spread that message, right? Yeah. And Darcy, what was the message? <laughs> that Eastern Métis are stealing their identity. Um, but it, I thought it was interesting because yeah. yeah, well, you know, it's just us bastards out in the east there. Um, at at one point in time, and uh, it doesn't say who said this, but uh, they said their identity comes down to kinship and culture, and uh, I thought that's interesting because basically what they've done is they've severed kinship ties along an imaginary border that didn't really exist at the time when Riel was alive which is the Ontario-Quebec border, which I thought was kind of interesting. I don't know. Well, and what I have trouble with is that that very narrative is there existed no Métis people then before Red River. They magically sprang from the ground like Cabbage Patch kids. Yeah. Um, And nothing led up to that event. So these group of people from just appeared there, these mixed-blood people all appeared in Red River and together there formed a flag, they formed a sash, they formed a jig, they formed carts, they formed buffalo hunting. And they, all these things originated, but only when the mixed blood people got together in Red River. And so there was no nothing before that date. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, they also had a discussion about their the Métis Nation homelands, which I think is funny because... Um, it basically just more or less follows the provincial boundaries, um, with a little bit of BC and Ontario, I think is cut off. But again, it, I mean, these, these homeland boundaries don't really follow any particular historical map or, or boundary. Well, and what's funny though, is there are things included in the homeland that are populated by Métis people. Well, actually, they'd be called mixed blood people that have no actual connection to Red River. Yes. Um, 
for instance, uh, the Jasper uh, Métis up in uh, Grand Cache. Yes. Yeah. A large portion of them have no connection to Red River. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and then taking it to different, for instance, here in Alberta, there's no, you know, according to the MNA, there's no Métis people south of the Red Deer River either. No, exactly. But yet they claim the whole province. Yeah, so how can that be part of the homeland if there's no people there? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, so so the famous Jerry Potts here from Alberta, who was touted as a great Métis negotiator, according to the MNA, isn't Métis, so... I guess there you go. <laughs> All those books were wrong. Well, and, and they make uh, they I don't know they just make some very weird statements at these things. Like um, this one fellow who was a professor of Native Studies at the U of A, which we all know is under the leadership of an anti-Eastern Métis person. He this this guy says uh, Métis emerged as a distinct group because of their part in the fur trade industry. Uh, but only the fur trade industry in Western Canada because of its isolation and important roles in the fur trade. They became a people and not just individuals who have mixed ancestry. Yet you had, I mean, you had that all over Eastern Canada. The, the, like, like, fur traders weren't just some isolated individuals bombing down the rivers. I mean... They actually did form communities, whether the government wants to, you know, recognize those communities or not. They had families. They formed communities. I mean, come on. But uh, so I just I think what what's interesting you know, out of this whole conversation, and I, I know we've over, probably covered this to death, is the <laughs> fact that the the Métis National Council. And what I think what I find most troublesome out of this is on on two points for the from this big powwow meeting they got is a Again, you have a non-Indigenous scholar taking up space and conversation in what should be a Métis venue by Métis people for Métis people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then second is the fact that the very terms that they're using for a Métis nation, that nationalistic viewpoint to say the Métis nation has nothing to do with Indigenous ancestry, has everything to do with colonial politics. It's saying that the standards that Europeans use to determine yeah. a nationhood is what they're using. So because under Le Real, they formed a provisional government, that's their high watermark for saying that's why they these group of mixed bloods are a nation. And every other person who's a mixed blood is not a nation, has nothing to do with indigenous ancestry, indigenous traditional governance but is only relative to the colonial standards applicable to that term. Absolutely. And you see that with everything they have. Like, they're, they're like again, going back to their homeland map. They fitted into provinces and then went, uh, now let's try to find a historical reason why it fits in those provinces. Um, like, and again, I always lo- love this one where they talk about um, uh, Rupert's Land. They're so proud of Rupert's Land, and yet Rupert's Land encompassed most of Quebec. But yet, for some reason, that chunk of Rupert's Land had no Métis in it, and the other chunk had lots of Métis. I don't, I don't know how that works, but uh, it must have had a really controlled border in Rupert's Land along the imaginary futuristic Quebec-Ontario border. <laughs> so, well, and what's troublesome about this whole conversation? 
is in the real world that we live in today, it negates again the whole conversation of the the Northwest Métis. Yep. Um, you know, we know the federal government's in negotiations with them. They are federally recognized. They're negotiating a land settlement deal. And yet the MNC simply goes on in a conversation that politely pretends they don't exist. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, those guys aren't, uh, they're not Red Riverians. They're, they're, their roots don't tie back to Red River yet. They're federally recognized, like you said. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, the fact is, I, was, I, I believe it was Powley was outside of the Métis Nation homeland at one point in time, weren't they? Wasn't Sault Ste. Marie outside of that map? Yeah, and that was the whole point of the the Pauli test, was that he, that was the whole point of them taking their harvesting to court, was to prove that they were not outside of yeah. the boundary. Yeah, um, so... And this is, again, somebody, just like Harry Daniels, they, they weren't card-carrying MNC or MNA or MN-anything members. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, no, it's when and I mean the a, a huge red flag should go up on any of these meetings when a Métis group is being bringing in uh, and and really obviously championing a Métis identity expert who themselves is not Métis. They didn't grow up with any Métis traditions. They didn't grow up learning Métis ways. They didn't grow up with Métis parents, Métis grandparents in a Métis community. They simply grew up and went to school and got a PhD because they read a lot of books about being Métis, so they're the expert. And this is who this Métis National Council is bringing in as their expert to talk about this. It's mind-numbingly baffling to me. Well, it, it, to put a, to, not to put too fine a point, it's anti-Indigenous. And oh, completely. We and that's what I don't like about this whole conversation, is we are using terms and definitions for nationhood and what it means to be a nation, that are colonial. Yes, we're bringing in colonial scholars to then propagate what it means to be Métis. So we're not even using, in like you said, people who grew up in our culture and our language and our ways, to have this conversation. Yeah, and then we can we can go from there to find out if we agree or disagree. But the reality is these are. You know, like you said, someone who has no connection to our culture, to our language, to our history, uh, Red River or otherwise, who's now the expert. Absolutely. Um, and what this boils down to, I think, is a lot of a lot of glad handing, a lot of you know, good political back padding, uh, a news station that no longer represents the interests of all Indigenous Métis people, but a select government-funded organization, and. You know what do you have? You have what do you, this is a great propaganda machine. Yep, absolutely. And that's really what it boils down to is they're playing a PR game, and arguably they're winning. Um, and they're winning because you know they have the ear of APTN and CBC and all these things. And uh, I mean, I, I just think it's ridiculous that at a at a at a Métis National Assembly. Uh, you don't have elders standing up and talking about Eastern Métis groups. You don't have, you know, um, p- pillars of your community standing up. You have a dude that who just read lots of books about it. And, I mean, it's like you said, this is completely anti-Indigenous. It wouldn't fly in any other Indigenous culture in the planet. Would it, would it fly to have a non uh, indigenous person come in and tell them who they are because they read lots of books. 
Um, it just wouldn't. That I think is what everybody else calls colonization. So it just yeah. wouldn't fly. And I, well, I don't know why people and, let and it that's here. That's what bugs me is then. Well, and that's what really bugs me is is then you have the APTN put in on there like it's something. You know, this is obviously yeah. uh, you know the poster boy for what the APTN feels is newsworthy, and yep. they back this. Um, we have you know uh, government employed university professors who hold this position, so then it's the popular view of the day, and so it really becomes a, a agenda that's being pushed. and And I think you know I I keep going back in my head to that video clip from a few years ago where uh, the president of the MMF, Trashen, said that Métis isn't as much a people as it is a brand. Yeah. And I, I really think that's what this is about, is a, a branding of that word, who what it means to be Métis. Yeah. And I think the, the like you, you touched on, what we haven't seen is a coalescing under this pressure yet of the Eastern Métis, you know, through Acadia and Quebec, uh, unify in some kind of cohesive mechanism to um, counter this message, which is is entirely too sad. Well, and it's it's tough because they're kind of behind an eight ball. Like I think they've there is a large group that have kind of come together. Um, however, I don't think I mean they are not getting APTN coverage. They're not getting CPC coverage. And when they do, it's arguably the worst of possible example of Eastern Métis that you could find um, to be on the news. And, um, you know, so it's like it's it's pretty tough to to counter APTN National and CBC. I mean, those are probably the two two biggest broadcasters in the indigenous world. Um, so how I do you how do you counter I that? I think you're right. But we, we again, I think we live in the you're right. Uh, when you're talking about broad social media, it's definitely you're behind the eight ball. But the benefit is, is we live in a day and an age where you can control your own social media in venues much like this through podcasts, through YouTube and stuff like that. Very true. I think the biggest thing that I've said before, and I'll say again now, is that the number one thing to counter this argument is the show living culture. Yes. And And what we don't see in the advent of this onslaught, this coalescing of an onslaught against Eastern Métis identity is the showcasing of Eastern Métis identity. You know, we had another whole summer go by and there's no powwow trail, as it were, of Quebec or Acadia of, of the Métis people out there. Very and true. I know they got, and I know they got, they got together. I know they held ceremony. I know they did those kinds of things. And I know they're not all for public consumption, but at the same time, there needs to be some kind of awareness made through those showcasing. I mean, you can go to every powwow that there is in Alberta and it's all listed and people can show up and go. We just don't see that. Yep. And I think that that void, that absenteeism of, of conversation that should be coming from our Eastern relatives is actually adding fuel to the fire in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, yeah, you're right. There is a whole lot of media or mediums that you can use for sure. Uh, YouTube, podcasts, like you said, all that stuff. So there is definitely a way to combat it, and I I wholeheartedly agree. I think it needs to be needs to be showcased that they're they're not only meeting, but they're they're doing culturally specific things. They're you know stuff like that. Um, arguing on Facebook and Twitter isn't necessarily where you're gonna make your most uh, 
you know, biggest gains as far as this this East versus West discussion goes. I think it's in the fact that you just bear down on your own community and your own culture, and you tried to build that strength within. And one of the things I would love to see is is for them to be, you know, if they're going to sit down with, uh, you know, First Nations leaders out there to maybe discuss what what it means to be Eastern Métis in in a in a you know non in their traditional territory, have those discussions, sit down with them, and and publicize that you guys met, just like these. Uh, the cartel is publicizing that they signed that uh, memorandum of understanding with the Micmac Nation last month. They're publicizing that every chance they get. Where's the opposite coming from out of the East Coast? And unfortunately, this is the political game. This is the politics game. You got to play it, or you're gonna lose. That's really what it boils down to. Well, even more than that, it's the it's the arena of public opinion. And. Yep. When it comes to this topic about Eastern Métis and their existence, their historical context, the problem is, is there's just a void. Um, yeah. And it, 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 there's a big silence on the Eastern side of things. And, you know, I've talked about this off air quite a bit, you know, and, and even trying to reach out and find a way to see if it was possible that from the West we could help out. But there has to be a close up of that void. And I, mm-hmm. I think that social media, and we live in a day and age where that's an unprecedentedly easy thing to do. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't seem, and, and this only adds to the credence. So either there's no one interested in defending their point in the East, which means how many Métis people are there really, um, which only adds more weight to the uh, cartel's position that everyone is fake. Yeah. Because any real communities any real people who have connection to the land, connection to their First Nations communities, connection to their ceremony, should be able to muster, I would hope, a few people willing to step forward and say, hey, we would like to add some counterweight to this conversation. Absolutely. You know, And I think you and I put this out there before, that if anybody wanted to, but they didn't know how, our number's there, please call. Yeah. Well, that's just it. Like, I mean, it doesn't take much to start a podcast, really. Uh, so start podcasting and start talking about the how, um, you know. I, I, and I think, too, the other thing is, is I do, as a caveat, I do think there are some individuals and some small groups that are trying to work really hard to achieve some recognition. And there's no doubt about that. However, I don't think it'll be done by trying to counter every single argument that's ever made uh, anti-Eastern Métis. I think it'll be done, you'll, you'll win more people over by, like you said, showcasing your communities and what they're doing and their culture and how they're doing positive and, and good things out there. Um, we There are certainly Eastern academics, uh, we know one, we've had them on the show many times, who will counter some of this academia as far as non-Eastern Métis academia. Um but I think there needs to be that positivity. It needs to be that, uh, that hey, we're working together. Hey, we're hunting together. Hey, we're hanging out together. Kind of, kind of feel to to their social media, um, as opposed to just posting, like you know, we have a podcast where we get to bitch about the cartel. So make that podcast. But you know, on your Facebook and stuff, start showing some positive things. Start start showing some teamwork with the the First Nations in the area that you're in, um, you know, stuff like that. I think that goes a long way to swaying the argument that, well, 
okay, you can say we're not here, but we are. So, because here we are. Look at what we're doing. As opposed to just, it's kind of almost like they say we're not, we say we are, and that's where it ends. And that's not a that's not a good way to convince anybody, you know. Well, and I think that's the sad part of this conversation. The MNC, because of who they are, the funding that they get, the size of their organization, has the privileged position to throw an accusation without founding. Yeah. So they can they can come out and say oh, there aren't any Eastern Métis, and every Eastern Métis that's out there is a fake. Yeah. Is that a true or false statement? Well, you know what? They don't have to. They don't have to verify that. They don't have to prove that. The only thing they're saying is they're making the statement and they're making it over and over and over again. And there simply isn't any coalescing. Um, it's like you said, you look at all those opportunities. There's no there's no website to warehouse all the data mm-hmm. and documents that's publicly accessible. Yeah. You know, you see them posted on Twitter and all these other social medias. But how do I, you know, if I'm Joe Skeptic, where do I go to find that information? Well, they're just not available. I don't, yeah. like you said, I don't see anybody in ceremonies. I don't see anybody with First Nations. I don't see anybody in community. I don't see any elder conversations. I don't see any videos posted about communities and their historical context. And so there's this huge void of pushback. And so the Absolutely. MNC can clearly just keep saying over and over and over again, there's no Métis East. There's no Métis East. There's no Métis East. And there's, there's, what's the response? Yeah. A few angry people on Twitter. Yeah, let's say, yes, there is. Well, okay. Now we're down to a my their word versus your word, and they have all the funding, money, and and thirty years of everybody acknowledging them, and in, in, as far as the government of Canada goes, acknowledging those other guys as the the Métis people. So, uh, yeah, it's it's an uphill battle. But um, you know, one of the things that I think would really counter a lot of this is, and and I you know I would have loved to have been able to do that out here, but is to start documenting. The elders in your communities and their stories. Start videotaping them, putting them on YouTube or podcasting them or doing something. But get those stories out so that, A, they're not lost forever when people move on to the next world. But, B, so that people can see, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, this person says they've been doing this and this and this. Well, that's the exact same kind of stuff that they were doing over here, only it's in a different geographical location. You know, like... Start highlighting this stuff. Start coming up with ideas outside of the the normal box of things. I mean, we have a a plethora of tools. You gotta start using all of them instead of just trying to bang away at two. Um, because they just you you're not gonna have the money and the coverage. And I, and if, you know, right? And I think that's the the challenge. The sad part about this is is it's an unfounded accusation that's been made. It's yeah. an unfounded and unfair position that the cartel is putting forward that isn't equitable it's not accurate and so the onus is on the individuals in the east to be able to muster a counter defense and and i think though luckily we live in a time in a day and age where it's never been easier yeah to do that like you said you know the stories videos podcasts social media you know websites are free to put up it's it's about the willpower i think that we need to coalesce out of our eastern kin to push back on that narrative with facts. Absolutely. And, and not not random pot, pot shots on the internet, you know, by a consistent, solid message and documentation. You know, you can you have all winter long now to leading up to spring to lay a platform. And if over the summer, is, you know, we had our Eastern kin get together and show this event or that event or this gathering or that gathering, 
you know, it really does a lot within a very short time to close up this, this negative, very lopsided uh, conversation. Absolutely would. Yeah. And, you know, I'd make the offer to anybody from within these, uh, you know, Eastern based Métis organizations. I mean, I, I can't, you know, really do a podcast from Alberta about the East Coast, but what we can do is like, you guys could send us an email at uh, metispodcast at gmail.com. And I can, you know, we can walk you through how to set up your own podcast. We'll help you out that way. It's, you know, if that's what you want to do. I mean, YouTube channels are super easy to set up. My, my I mean, my 11-year-old could set one up. Um, you know, things like this, they're just, it's not anything, complicated. Yeah. And but. if you need help. We've run a YouTube channel and we've had a podcast yeah, and absolutely, we, you know, any anything we can do to close up the gap, I think we'd be happy to to help out with. It's just that we can't run it from Alberta. Absolutely, and and I think um, you know I, I make that offer locally here for any Indigenous that that are thinking about podcasting. I, I'm more than happy to uh, volunteer my time and help them get set up, set up with them. Um, you know, I'm. And, and that's just the same offer I would make to anybody on the East Coast. I'll do what I can, and we'll try to help you guys out. And, and But I think these are things that need serious consideration. I mean, we started this podcast with zero experience and an iPhone. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it was a learning curve for us, but, I mean, you know, anybody can really start it up. So you just need one or two people willing to do the do the work, and... And that's really it. So I, I, I don't know. I just think we got to ca- start countering this message with a lot more positivity. And like you said, Jason, a lot more showcasing of, you know, the Eastern culture, Eastern Métis culture, and Eastern Métis communities, I think, is is a huge thing. I think you're totally right on that. Well, I know they're there. I'm, I'm just very tired of these kinds of, oppor- you know, very... It's opportunistic. The yeah. MNC is in a privileged position where they can sit there and hold this meeting and they can spout off ad nauseum with non-Indigenous people who know nothing about Métis culture other than what they read in a book. Yeah. And, the, and there's absolutely zero counterweight. Yes. You know, they're the average person who's watching APTN, who's watching, you know, this drivel on the, the YouTube is not going to research anything. But at the same time, you and me who see these things, I don't have a video I can throw in there and say, hey, what about this? Or, hey, what about that? Absolutely. There's no website I could say, hey, go read this and you'll get an actual, you know, information. Or, hey, go watch these set of video clips of yeah. of these different, you know, communities. You know, you and I are just as much in the void. We can sit here and we can, you know, harp on the MNC because it's misinformation and we know it is. But I, too, don't have a lot of proof to, to back it up other than my own personal experience and the conversations that I've had with people who I know. Yeah, you, like we've done our own fair bit of research for ourselves, for this show, and things like that. But average Canadian or average person isn't going to do that. And, uh, you know, to a lot of people who even know that Métis exist, they see the Métis National Council and they hear that those guys are the, the national body for Métis, and they go, okay, that sounds good. So... You you do have to counter that with something, and you've got to do it in a platform where people are going to watch it. I mean, um, <clears throat> it's I think it's an absolutely ridiculously high stat, like uh, like eighty percent of people working in offices now um, watch YouTube or have YouTube videos playing in the background while they're working, like um, 
you know, almost the entire day. So there's a huge platform on YouTube and there's an opportunity to get out some stories, get out some videos of elders talking and, and sharing stories about their communities, their history. Um, let's get these things out. Uh, and I think you'd be surprised with what might happen. But yeah, I mean, you need to counter it somehow. And trying to go at it with big media like CBC and stuff, that's going to be really tough when you have zero funding, zero dollars, zero recognition, really, from the federal government. And all you're doing is trying to say, no, whatever he said was wrong. We're right. It's, they're not, you know, that doesn't, that's not going to play well on the big stage. That's right. But I think that you hit the nail right on the head, though, that, uh, you know, most of the videos we did for our YouTube channel and everything else, these were done with phones. We did, I, you know, started a podcast with nothing more than, a, you know, a cell phone. Yeah. You know, so I, I think the reality is, is it, we need to be able to find the traction with our Eastern kin to put people together to make this kind of thing happen. Absolutely. Because otherwise, in six months from now, it only gets worse. You know what I mean? It only it only becomes more and more real, more and more valid, the longer the conversation is allowed to go on with no real counterweight. Absolutely. And and again, like I said, you know, we'd be happy to help anybody out, uh, offer advice, uh, kind of, I mean, I've set up uh, probably about five or six podcasts now, so like I can run through it almost in my sleep on how you get them all set up and go. So, hey, matesypodcast at gmail.com, send an email. And start your own podcast out there in French and English. And that's something we definitely cannot do. <laughs> so, 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 but uh, you know, Sadly, no. no, I know, but it's, it's worth mentioning because I mean, you'd be surprised at a, how fun doing a podcast is, but how, how, uh, you can get your message out and you can then share a podcast on all your social media and things like that. Like it, it's a very different thing than just trying to share historical statistics and facts and, and being angry about something. It's a very different thing, you know. And the podcast world is very open to all voices, so get your voice out there. Get it on the air. That's what I would say. It's never been easier. <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you After know... All, if we're doing it, anybody can do it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think... I think when our very our first two episodes, I think were recorded, and we had invested. I think I invested about fifteen dollars into a little tripod stand for my iPad or my iPhone, so that we could set it up and then kind of sit a, a little bit away from it. <laughs> so, so there you go. That's that's really. I mean, it's as simple as that, really. Um. Oh, it is. I mean, how many times was I calling into you and we were doing these shows and I was using nothing more than, uh, you know, my phone and my earbuds and a mic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to do. And, and, you know, I am again, I'd love to offer that to anybody out there listening to help you guide you through the process of getting a podcast going. And, uh, we can even talk about, uh, how you get it on the, on the internet and everything. So, Happy to do that for anybody who's interested. I would love to see uh, Easter Métis podcast, but Easter Métis podcast in both French and English. I think that would be absolutely phenomenal. Because let's be honest, that is something that the cartel is not doing, is reaching out on you know new media, because they don't have to. They have APTN in their pockets, and they have CBC anytime they want to make a phone call and make a press release. So you know, counter that with your own stuff. 
Um, I think, so we talked about, uh, you know, obviously very colonial mentality at the MNC using colonial education and non-Métis experts on Métis opinions or identity. But I, I want to go back to uh, something that we've talked about just maybe once or twice on the show about Ottawa not living up to its promises. Um, and in this particular case... Oh, no. <laughs> I know, it's shocking, Jay. I know. Ottawa did not live up to its promises. Um, <laughs> they blew... Uh, so the headline is Ottawa blowing deadlines for First Nation historical claims, uh, which um, under the... Specific Claims Tribunal Act, Ottawa is legislated that they are required to respond within three years after a First Nation files a specific claim uh, regarding monetary um, value of lands and stuff and resources that were taken. Um, So Ottawa, I think, has uh, less than a 20% response rate or something like that. To, to these claims within mm-hmm. three years. So they're they're not following the law. Can you believe that? Yes. What's hilarious is, again, so the government in this whole age of reconciliation sets this whole business up to give recourse, right, to First Nations communities and Métis people to 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 talk about these lands and lacks, lack of compensation. Yeah. And when First Nations people take advantage of it and, and uh, launch complaints... I mean, here's the timetable. So you and I get pissed off. We launch a legitimate complaint. The government's time to respond to us before they're penalized at all is three years. Yes. So <laughs> that in of itself is like, so the government is stealing from you and yeah. from your traditional territory. Yep. You you call them on it and you launch a legitimate complaint. They say, yes, this is a legitimate complaint. And I don't know how long that takes. And then the government has three years to continue doing whatever it's doing, yeah, before it actually has to respond to your your allegation, yeah, of okay. which they only do that you know about twenty percent of the time. Yeah, they they say in here. I just found the statistic. It said that they've missed the deadline on sixty five percent of all the claims that have been put in. So, you know, I and I know that this is not Métis land claims. Um, these are First Nation claims. But I think it highlights the point that we've made time and time again when it comes to promises of money and promises of 10 years' worth of funding and blah, blah, blah. I mean, let's face facts. If if they have it in there to in, as a law to respond within three years and they don't, they don't make it, and they don't even... It, it really doesn't even seem like they're really trying to make it at 65% fail rate. Um, and if that's actually legislated... <laughs> what? Why do people think they're going to be held to account on promissory money that is not legislated, is not required, is not part of anything other than, you know, uh, just uh, Jesus Trudeau's promise? Um, <laughs> he also promised they would, you know, put Indigenous, uh, the relationship with Indigenous people is the most important. And I think they're showing that it's really not. I don't know. Well, I think what they're showing, and I think this goes right across the board, like you see this quite a bit in Indigenous social media. You look at all the First Nations communities that are in negotiations for different things with the government, 
um, whether it's treaty or land or monies, you at what point do you give your head a shake and say, well, holy crap, the year is 2018, and it might as well be 1818 because the federal government is no more willing to live up to its obligations to any promise it makes than it was 100 years So, and we have zero recourse. Like, how how is it we have a 65% failure rate on this, but how do we hold the government accountable? Exactly. Yeah. You know, like, like what are we going to do? We got to sue them now on a thing that they set up, that they broke, that we have no recourse to do what? Like, how do we make them accountable for the 65% failure rate? Well, that's just it. And that's one thing that is. If I was a First Nations community, you know, go ahead. I was going to say that's one thing that that wasn't mentioned in here is is any kind of redress at all as to how they they deal with that. So, yeah, so we're completely left, you know, flat footed again because they make made a law in this era of reconciliation to uh, you know let us have uh, the opportunity, I guess, within the Canadian system to have this recourse. But then they're like, meh, yeah, you know, so yeah, so we failed. I yeah. Mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the whole? Isn't that the whole story we have, right, from the signing of treaties to now? Is me, you know, uh, well, we didn't live up to it. I'm sorry. Yeah, and yeah. you know, on we go. <laughs> exactly. And and I, I, I have no obligation to live up to it tomorrow. And yeah. And what are you going to do about it? That's really what it boils down to. What are you going to do about it? Because the government knows that if they don't meet these deadlines, then what's going to happen? Well, I'll tell you what's not going to happen. Justin Trudeau's not going to go to jail. Uh, Carolyn Bennett's not going to go to jail. The other minister, who I can't remember right now, she's not going to go to jail. Nobody that works in those departments is going to go to jail for breaking a law. Um, they're not even going to get fined. So what is the recourse uh, on all of this? You know, and I think this, you know, there there was an open letter. Well, I mean, that, is, that, is that the whole point? Like, if you, yeah, if you failed this, so if you failed to meet the obligation, does that mean... The com- the complainant is right, and the government has to cease and desist because they didn't respond. Yeah, you know, at the, at the very least, you'd think that. Okay, so if you file a complaint, the government is is doing X, Y, and Z, and that was inappropriate. That they would now that they have failed to address that course of action, boom, you're right, you win, and they've got to stop. Well, who, who the heck knows? We're just like meh. Well, we're I guess we're right and they're wrong, or they just will get around to answering us in another three years. Well, that's just it, and I mean, again, the reality is, is let's let's say for for example that uh, the Trudeau government is changed out in the next election. Well, the guys coming in with the blue shirts on, they're not going to make this a priority either. So you're going to be sitting here three more years from now, going, wait a minute, you guys haven't responded in six years, and then when the blue guys change out to the red shirts again you're going to have the same thing. Well, well, now it's been 12 years and we haven't seen any movement on these claims. So, you know, it goes well, back. Then, what, then what'll happen is it'll be like, oh, they'll be like, oh, well, this department's been here for 12 years. We've addressed less than 60, you know, less than 20% of all these things. Why do we even have this organization? We should scrap it and save the money. Yeah. Or maybe they'll split the the two versions of INAC into... Uh, I don't know, four now. Maybe maybe we need four INAC departments in order to, to deal with all this with four different ministers and but yeah, I mean and the 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 thing that's sad for me is that people are are like basically betting or 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 taking their chances on all this promised money and all these memorandums of understanding that are being signed, which 
in the end of the day, have no value whatsoever because the government can change and the government's attitude towards Métis and Indigenous and Inuit people in general can completely change whenever there's an election, whenever they want, whenever there's a minister change, whenever there's a you know cabinet shuffle. These things can change. And... Uh, you know, even in the provincial level, you look here. The you know um, the provincial government of Alberta signed a an MOU with the Métis Nation of Alberta. Well, if if the NDP don't get in in the next election and it's the UCP, I can almost guarantee you that Jason Kenney is not going to give a rat's ass about Métis people or these MOUs. They mean absolutely diddly squat. So it, well, he'll care. He'll the only he'll care about Métis people on, on one regard. And that will be how much money he can cut from that giving to Métis people. Exactly. How much is there in that that portfolio to chop out of there for, you know, for paying off the the Alberta debt? Exactly. And, you know, one of the quotes in here that I thought was really good um, was in a letter from uh, Chief Judy Judy Wilson, sorry, Chief Judy Wilson uh, from the Nisconolith Nation in British Columbia, I believe. And she said, non-compliance with legislation enacted to protect the rights of Indigenous people contradicts every public commitment your gov- the government has ever made regarding reconciliation. And I think that's a, that's a really clear and well-worded statement as to exactly what this means. They'll come out in public and say, oh, the most important relationship is the one with Indigenous people. But in the back rooms where all the work's being done, they're pushing a f- uh, Indigenous rights framework that most people don't want except the cartel, the colonial cartel. They're pushing um, things that you know First Nations Inuit don't want, and they're you know they're not dealing with these claims in any type of fashion whatsoever with any priority. We still have do not drink advisories. We still, you know, we we still got all this shit going on that that they promised would be done, and it, none of it's done. And I think. It's very clear through their actions. Indigenous relationships are not the priority for the government. Well, I'll, 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 I'll disagree with you there. And here's why I think this is. I honestly think to the federal government, it is the most important relationship, only in so much as that it needs to be terminated. It needs True. to be tourniqueted. It needs to be ended. That's the only reason it's important. It's not important yeah. as in an, what, like, I think this is the big difference in perspective is we as First Nations and in, in, in Métis and Inuit people believe that it's an ongoing partnership. You know, that's what the whole wampum's about. Yep. And I think the, the reality is, is the federal government, you know, for the last hundred years and even up until this day has very clearly been expressing the fact that it wishes no part in a continued relationship. It wants to and terminate and discontinue that relationship any way possible. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, from what I've read of uh, the whole uh, framework agreements, that's kind of what it is. It's like the final solution. Um, and, you know, I, I read somebody, somebody said something really, I thought it was quite funny, where they said, you know, why do we need a framework agreement? We already have them. They're called treaties. Those were framework agreements. Well, how about you just live up to those first? And I, I kind of, it, it was funny, but at the same time, very true. Um, I mean, how many agreements do you need in order to fulfill obligations that you originally had laid out in the treaties? Now, for the non-treaty territories, I, yeah, that's a different issue, but I just thought that was kind of an interesting take on that. 
but yet true at the same time. And that's the whole point is it's exactly this whole failure rate issue is the government has, the federal government since the signing of every treaty has had a, an absolute failure rate to live up to any part of its negotiation in the treaties. Yeah. And yet here we, we are in, in 2018 and the government is still trying to negotiate. And we, so we have a hundred or, you know, a hundred and some odd years now, 150 some odd years of this ongoing negotiation of a framework to, you know, try to, to try to whittle down that uh, treaty commitment, you know? Absolutely. Because some, somehow if, if the treaty commitment gets less and less and less, we'll, we'll finally, you know, find the point where the government can like live up to it. <laughs> which is termination <laughs> when, when, when all aboriginal title rights and everything else is terminated the federal government will actually be able to live up to that yeah absolutely absolutely and you know i, I think it just says a lot when and I, I you know i i think for me bringing this up it was to highlight for metis people that i would not put uh, all my stock into these promises of of funding these promises of memorandums of understandings these are these are not sol- solid I mean, they're not even legally binding, really, uh, for anything. Uh, in those MOUs, it says nothing about legally binding the governments to funding programs or services or legally binding them to obligations of anything other than they promise to meet once in a, you know, in a certain time frame to discuss issues. And like we've said on previous shows, that means nothing in, in and of itself. So I think... Uh, for me, it's to highlight for people who who may think, oh, the government promised us, you know, all this money. Well, when we say they're not going to live up to it, it's just me and Jason. But when you actually pull up articles where, hey, the government's not living up to their promises, it's not just me and Jason anymore. It's it's actually <laughs> pretty obvious. So, I hope I hope people hear that message. I, I hope they understand that you know these governments, all of this stuff means really nothing, and it's just for press. It's for publicity. Another piece of paper to hang on the wall that the government has no intention of living up to. Absolutely, and really, it boils down to all they do is they they want Métis to vote for them and call it good. That's really all it's it's about. Um, now, moving from that, uh, one of the last second, I guess second last articles I wanted to talk about. Um, <clears throat> we have a child in foster care in Manitoba who was sexually abused. And it was a private uh, foster care company that was running this foster care place. And uh, it was B&L Resources for Children and Youth and Families and who was running this foster home. And uh, they basically dragged their feet on dealing with the sexual abuse complaints or, or you know, things like that. So they kind of drug it out, drug it out, and didn't do anything. And so now, um, originally the government in Manitoba was not going to investigate this, but of course now that the media is there and the publicity is there, they actually have launched an investigation. Um, But what I thought was interesting is that the mother of the child is asking them to not only investigate this company and the, the home and all the people involved, but she's asking them to investigate Métis Child and Family Services as well because they were the legal guardians of the child at the time. And she says, and this is her words, that she explained to them what happened and she felt like she wasn't listened to. Um, they need. She said they need to look at the social workers involved the, and at the people, the supervisors, 
They look at the, need to look at the Métis Child Family Services, and they need to put all of that together as to why this wasn't taken seriously. So some pretty harsh allegations uh, from the mother um, about Métis Child Family Services. So, Well, it, it always amazes me, and, you know, you know, you're chagrinning to the max that as Indigenous people who have suffered from trauma for a very long time, that when one of our own comes forward with a right, wrong, substantiated or unsubstantiated claim of impropriety in any way, that we wouldn't take that seriously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, if, if we're, and that's what deeply saddens me. If there's an allegation of that sort that's leveled at in any indigenous one, Métis or not, that, you know, these kinds of things go on, sexual assault goes on and it's brushed off. It's not dealt with or looked into. It doesn't, you know what I mean? Like how many yeah. more years does that kind of crap really got to go on? Yeah. Well, and uh, just reading further into it, uh, allegations from this specific location uh, started to emerge in 2016. So we're at least two years of allegations. And again, uh, if nothing was done or it was delayed in any way, I definitely think some people need to be investigated for that because that's absolutely horrendous that that, uh, that, that would go on. And I, I, I always hope that, uh, you know, organizations like Métis Child and Family Services or, you know, whatever they're called there in, in Manitoba would take these kinds of things very seriously. And I'm, I'm sure on some level they did. Um, but I think I also have to go a little bit with what the mother's saying because a lot of times the parents in these cases are basically negated to the sidelines and treated as if they don't have any say or any importance in this these situations. And, um, you know, there's the stigma that, oh, you've had your child removed. You just must be a horrible, horrible parent. That's why. So then when the parent says anything, people just tend to disregard that, I think. And I think that's that's horribly, horribly wrong. Um, well, and those are the kinds of things when Indigenous people are operating inside of colonial systems, you know what, that's pretty much the status quo. But when a Métis person or an Indigenous person is inside one of our own organizations, yeah, you would really hope that was not the same treatment. Yeah, you expect more. You expect better. Yeah. And I, I think that's where, where we as Indigenous people need to hold our own organizations and our own outfits that deal in, in every aspect um, to a higher accord because they, they're, they're our people. These are supposed to be our organizations representing, you know, Indigenous interests. And, you know, if, if this is what's happening to, you know, a, a Métis mother inside of a Métis organization, it makes it all the worse. Absolutely it does. And, I, you know, and I just want to point out, I do believe that the Métis Child and Family Community Services Agency is, you know, part and parcel of the Manitoba Métis Federation. Um, so I just, you know, I think it's very important that while they get to travel and spend 8800 more or plus dollars per day on travel and, and expenses like that, meanwhile there's, uh, you know, Métis families that whose kids are in care and they're are they being taken care of? I don't know. The allegations are that they're not. They're not being properly taken care of. And I think, you know, I, I always go back to this freaking eight, $8,000 plus a day travel expense and say, you know, how much, 
what what could have happened in Métis Family Services for $8,000 a day or, you know, things like that. Like, it's it's so frustrating when you have these so-called leaders running around wearing their finest beaded outfits with talking to some dum-dum who's not even a Métis about Métis identity, talking about that's the real problem they're facing. I don't know. I think this is a real the real problem you're facing. How about you focus on making your own shit real good before you start telling everybody else how much they suck? And I, I've always felt yeah. that way, but I don't know. Well, me too. And that's, we've talked about that lots. We talk about these, you know, AGMs and giant meetings with people flowing all over the country to host these meetings in huge boardrooms that are televised on APTN with every kind of doctorate and professorate and beaded this and that, and yet we have people who are separated. I mean, the very thing is, why is this mom separated from her kids in the first place? We have people living yeah. in shanties on the side of the road, like it's, you know, 17, 12 again. And, you know, and the, the list goes on and on of, of the hardships that are still facing all Indigenous people. And yet, you know, I can't afford one thing that any of those people on stage is wearing. And, you know, where where's the money you know where you know if the government is really there for metis people and these leaders are really here for metis people really the you go down to the proof is in the pudding you hit the ground level you go to the streets and you go to the you know the road allowance and i tell you man not much has changed absolutely i mean you know this this story comes out right at a time when uh, they're having this big meeting and of course, the Prime Minister's there, and Carolyn Bennett is there, and all these dignitaries are there, and Minister from this department is there, and they're all glad-handing and stuff, and yet, you know, this, this mother's not going to have the Prime Minister or Carolyn Bennett or, you know, Clem Chartier or David Chartrand show up at her door. They're not going to do that. They're not going to bring her to pay for her to travel to the big annual meeting to talk about her experience through this pro process. No, no, that's not what they're going to talk about. They're going to bring bring in, you know, they're going to make sure that the prime minister is there and they all have a really good catered lunch because that's what's important. Um, and it just honestly just pisses me off. I I don't want to, you know, I don't know. I, I just feel like stories like this highlight the, the colonial attitude within these cartel organizations who then point the finger and say that the real problem is that the Eastern Métis are stealing our identity. And I, I, I'm i sorry, but I could find probably a hundred stories within your own organizations that are very much much higher priority, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, I don't have a beaded vest so as nice as Clem Chartier, so maybe I don't understand. <laughs> if only you... you uh understood how greased wheels and hand glad handing actually worked yeah you would know these kinds of things darcy but well i guess that's why i'm not a politician i'm i'm, I'm not good at this because i just that's all great and i understand the the need for that but really seriously if, if your biggest problem is some other outside group who has no funding no political backing no uh media backing and no really no support whatsoever is your biggest problem I think you're looking in the wrong direction, personally, but that's just me. Well, and, and that, you know, and, and you bring up a valid point. That that really shows the hilarity of the whole conversation is all those things are true. I mean, just like we talked about, there's no website. There's no coalescing of information. There's no YouTube channel. There's no, there's not, like, there's not a, like, zip. And yet, this is the greatest threat to Métis identity since, you know, Riel fought and died. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, so the, the biggest threat to the Métis homeland is not mothers whose children are getting abused. No, no, it's not people who are living in poverty. No, no, it's uh, that those damn Easterners trying to steal our identity. Yeah, right. Or and all, it's it's not even the know, corruption. Eighty thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, there's no corruption. No, the MNC is totally about board and transparent. You've seen their Absolutely. financial statements. <laughs> oh, haven't we all? Right. <laughs> so I did want to end on a bit of a a, a happier note, though. Um, and this comes from within the cartel organizations, I'm kind of on the fringe though. I am pretty sure that he's on the fringe at this point. Um, we had a story coming out of, uh, Fort Mackay and the Fort Mackay Métis have, I don't know if all of our listeners remember, but a year ago, maybe a little bit more, but around a year ago, uh, they were the first Métis community, I believe in Canadian history to purchase their own land, uh, their own community and all the land that it's on. So they own Fort Mackay, and the government does not. And following that, which I thought was pretty amazing, and then Fort McMurray actually purchased a bunch of land themselves, so I thought that was pretty amazing. But Fort Mackay has followed that up with an even better one. Well, or I guess a a, a good second uh, punch to the combination. And they've purchased a resort that is within a provincial park on a lake. And... Um, the resort was already there. It was already built, and it just came up for sale, and they bought it. And they are going to maintain it as a place for their people to go hunting, fishing, and trapping, um, or just get back on the land and go be part of the land. And I just think that's absolutely phenomenal. I think that's the fan- probably some of the best news within the Métis world that I've I've seen in the last little while. Well, and I know, and I, I know lots of people will scoff at Indigenous people buying back uh, land, but I think the reality is we're not going to see any uh, new settlements. We're not going to see any new treaties signed with, uh, especially the Métis people, uh, to hand over more lands. So while I'm not, you know, I'm not a hundred percent saying, "Ooh, yay, we bought back our own land." Yeah. Um, I think the reality is, is this is in in a real world 2018 context, the easiest, fastest, most definitive way for us to create space on the land for our own people. And you and I have talked about it lots. There's 500,000 Métis people in this province. If we could get all of them together to give us $1 a day, we could buy a quarter section in every province every month. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for, Mé- for Métis people, uh, you know, and our land base could grow every year with only a dollar a day, <laughs> you know? But, yeah. And, and so they're, what they're doing up there is commendable. It's admirable. It should be looked to as a benchmark of what Métis people could be doing if we would only pool our resources. Well, yeah, because you have to keep in mind, I, I, I don't I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I know that their community is less than, I'm going to say less than 250 people. Um, so for a community that size, who, yes, they have a lot of industry and stuff surrounding them, which is kind of part of the problem, because um, their, their gross growth as a community is very confined because of the oil sands and all the industry growth that surrounds them. And people have to keep in mind that you can't hunt in and around oil uh, leases and oil pipelines and things like that. Like you're you're very limited as to where you can hunt because of all the oil field work up there. And so for them to actually get a space where they got land in a within a I think it's within a provincial park. So it's kind of it's going to be nice and um, you know kind of severed away from the the industry. And that's. 
and and I thought was really cool is they actually put it to the community to say, hey, we could keep this open and operated as a as a source of revenue, as a commercial revenue, if you want. And the community said, no, we want it just for us. We want a, a traditional place. And so they said, okay, well then that's what we'll do to do with it. And I thought that was absolutely amazing as well. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just fantastic. And I, I, to your point, Jason, I think it's absolutely correct. I mean, I would love to say that the government would just give us land. And maybe one day that will happen, but it won't happen in the next three generations of my family. And so if, you know, and, and we have talked about this lots, if we could just pool our money, um, even a little bit a month, yeah, look at the difference we can make. I mean, these guys are in a place that's very, very um, restricted as because of the industries that's are, that are up there. But you look at a lot of communities, I mean, even in around Calgary, there's land for sale. I mean, a quarter section of land, and it's not even that expensive. And there's almost twenty-five to 26,000 Métis in the community, in the Calgary area. Well, if half of those people put in 10 bucks a month, like, holy crap, you could buy a lot of land. And like you said, it might not be the, the necessarily the right way to do it, but it is the fastest and easiest way to get the result you want. Right? So... Mm. Yeah, I mean, we see it all the time. I think uh, one of the big things is you look uh, that I look at this as a great example is our brethren down to the south in the United States have taken lots of opportunities to buy back land and turn it into reserve land over time. And I think this would be a first step if Métis people, I mean, we have, like you said, there's 100,000 self-identifying Métis people in the province of Alberta. If you had anybody who is willing to contribute less than a coffee a day to the project of, of uh, restoring true Métis lands to Métis people, boy, we could do a lot of good. Um, but sadly, that probably won't happen. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, we, we talk about, um, even within the communities, people just, you know, putting in, you know, let's say a buck a day or something. But the truth is, is uh, Fort Mackay has done all this because they've developed uh, businesses and industry and, and revenue sources outside of the government and specifically and purposefully outside of the Métis Nation of Alberta. And they get a lot of flack from that, uh, for that, because the other communities within the Métis Nation of Alberta are like, well, you should be sharing that with all of us. But the truth is, is why don't you take your community and form your own and start doing that? And I think that's where there's a huge problem with people is they look to see what somebody else is doing and then criticize it, but yet, or make suggestions on how it could be better. But yet they're not willing to put, step up and say, here's how I think this could be better, and I'm willing to, to jump up and, and start doing that. And um, I think if every community in Alberta stepped up and said, hey, let's start creating our own businesses, let's start creating our own revenue source, you could do it. It's not a problem. If one place did it, all places can do it, you know? But mm -hmm. I think that's the thing is the Métis people are still a minority within Canada, but not a small enough minority Then. It doesn't take very much pooling before it becomes significant and significant change can happen. I just think most people are, are waiting for something free for themselves rather than looking about how we can make a real impact. If we're talking about seven generations, you look at something so small as a couple bucks a day or a month or a year, how we could really change the story in a single generation, never mind two, three or seven. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, it's kind of it's mind-boggling on what you could achieve uh, in such in a very short period of time, or you can sit back and continue to argue with the government and hope that one day they're just going to, out of the kindness of their hearts, while they're tr- at the same time that they're trying to continue to take land away from First Nations, they're going to somehow just give for- land back to Métis people. Like it's just. You're going to wait forever. That's never going to happen. We just spent, you know, 45 minutes talking about how the government really doesn't want the re- this relationship. They want to end it. <laughs> and you think they're going to give you land? <laughs> like, that's that's ridiculous. So you, you've got to take the initiative. And I think me and you have been very open about, our, you know, our opinions on there's a system in place, and it's a very colonial system, which sucks, and I don't like it either, but... It's the system the colonial government uses. So let's find loopholes and let's find ways to use that system in our favor. It might not be the best solution. It might not be the ethical solution. But it is a solution and it works really fast if you want it to. And I think buying land is a great example. And and I think that's what it boils down to though is it, it brings, and this is the conversation we've had lots, is it takes, and I think this is where there's a disconnect, is it takes the responsibility for Métis identity, Métis politics, Métis, our culture, our language, and everything that makes us us. It takes it away from pointing our fingers at a leader, at a group, at a body, at a a cartel organization, and brings it right back to ourselves. What am I personally willing to do for the preservation of the Métis people? And I think most people simply aren't willing to go there yet. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, you know, if you... If you had 10,000 Métis and they put in a buck a day, like 30 bucks a month, and you'd have 300 grand a month. I mean, that could that would clearly buy a lot of land very quickly. And uh, up, in, up in my neck of the woods, it's just about a quarter section. Yeah, and even, you know, I mean, it's, what do you pay for cable? What do you pay for cell phone bills? What do you pay for, you know, things like that? Well, <laughs> it's 30 bucks a month. It's probably going to be your smallest bill. <laughs> So I know you shouldn't have to pay to be Métis, but the truth is, is if you want land to go do hunting or ceremony or anything to get back on the land, just to have Métis camping or whatever, you're going to need to to do something faster than hope that the government's going to give it to you. And uh, I, well, I think that's the, the attitude we have to take is the attitude of our ancestors is not what can being Métis get me, but what can I do to perpetuate the Métis people? Absolutely. What can I what can I personally do to participate in to ensure that the Métis way of life, our values, our culture, our identity, our language, our music goes into the future? For How sure. How do I make sure that our those spaces are, are made available for my all those who come after me? And I think the reality is we need to wake up, shake off the, the rust, and uh, look to the future and say the future is really going to have to be of our own making. Yeah, we can't be dependent on a government, like you said, that never lives up to its own promises. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the theme of the night. Government uh, sucks. Colonialism sucks. The government doesn't live up to its promises. And uh, people who are not Métis can't be Métis experts on identity. So uh, I think those are the themes of the night. (laughs) No no matter how many books you read. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You can read a lot of books about something. You might be considered an expert in academia, but... Um. All right. Well, I think that's all I had for tonight. How about you, Jay? Got it all out of your out of your mind. 
Oh, no. I mean, you could turn on the Facebook right now or Twitter and you'll probably have 10 more things. Yeah, I know. I know. We purpose, I purposely don't have those on during podcasts because I'd be like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. Um, exactly. But, hey, I want to say to all our Eastern people that are listening, uh, you know, I know you guys do have your organizations and stuff. Uh, you guys, I, I really suggest you guys really start pushing hard on highlighting and showcasing what you guys are doing, not just fighting with the government or fighting with the cartel. Highlight what you're doing for yourselves and to make your community stronger, make your people happier and, and better. Because um, I know there is organizations out there that are great, um, but we need to get that social media blitz going. Uh, Podcast at gmail.com if you want to send any comments, questions. You want to know how to set up a podcast? Well, I'd be more than happy to help you with that. Uh, so send us those messages. Um, but I guess uh, for this week, uh, oh, and check out our Patreon page if you want to show support for the show. Otherwise, until next week, the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. I don't know if I'm going